So we have been in this conversation, the, the saga of the lost ark, and we'll be wrapping it up next week. And I wanted, before we, before we concluded, I wanted to spend a little bit of time looking at the way that the, the, um, the story of the lost ark, or now currently the found ark, but it'll get lost again. Um, the ark intersected with the story of David. David is, um, uh, the, the ark actually goes on, the people of God uh, continue to have the ark in their presence for another 400 years or so. So it's not going to get lost for quite a while. But there is this period of time where it intersects with the rule of King David. And uh, David always is, is uh, an interesting character for me. Um, David is not my favorite character in the Bible. Uh, years ago, um, when I was a baby Christian, I was in a Bible study, and I mentioned that. I mentioned that David was not somebody that I particularly cared for. And the, the leader of the Bible study, John Stevens, said, well, he's not the hero. And I, I've kind of taken that, that with me, that David has some good qualities, he has some bad qualities, um, but he is not the hero of the Bible. The hero of the Bible, of course, is God. So I've, I've carried that with me. Uh, years ago when I was in seminary, um, I heard another, another kind of a, a rule of thumb that as you're reading the stories about David, you can keep in mind. You know, when I think about a king, King David, I think about, you know, Queen Elizabeth or the guy who hands out the Nobel Prizes or somebody. I think about, you know, a modern day king and, and that's my problem. What, what uh, Dennis Olson, Professor Olson in my Old Testament class said is probably the best way to look at an Old Testament king or really anybody from the ancient uh, Near East would be to think about Tony Soprano, to think about a mob boss. And then you've got the right kind of basis and you can say, well, he's a good mob boss or he's a bad mob boss. So in that light, David actually shows up pretty well. Um, so we don't get a chance to see so many of the other ones who who would have been bad mob bosses. So I like those two, but probably the best way of looking at David, and the reason I want to look at him today, is that David is this larger-than-life character. The thing about David is his flaws and his strengths are magnified in a way that a lot of ours aren't. It's so much easier to see things by looking at David and then saying, actually, you know, I'm kind of like that, not just not to the same degree. Um, you know, the, the, the strengths that David has... Uh, we, we can see maybe some of our own strengths in that because they, they're so bold. You know, they're in primary colors. They're, they're in bold type. We see the things that David does that is, that is right, and we say, I could be like that. But we also see oftentimes, as we look at the story of David, we see somebody who has major flaws in his life, and they jump out at us too because, again, they too are in the bold colors and the, the bold type. So, so David is actually this great, uh, uh, teaching example you know i read something maybe your maybe your purpose in life is to serve as an example to others and sometimes that's what david's purpose in life seems to be to to be as an example to others and um, we're going to look at we're going to look at a story today that is that is basically a story in large part of david's own creation that if david had been better at the things he was called to do then this crisis would not have come upon him and i know that every crisis in your life comes totally out of the blue, and you had nothing to do with creating the conditions that led to it. But on the off chance that it ever does happen, that you have some kind of a, a historical uh, a past, and it comes back into your future at some point, maybe you can, you can learn something from the life of David there. The other thing is that the problems of David, because David has such great problems, because he has so many uh, flaws, his problems are a lot bigger and easier to see. You know, if you're having trouble with your family, trust me, David had 
much bigger problems with his family, as we'll see today. If you have problems with your job, again, as we'll see today, David had much bigger problems with his job. So it's easier to see the things that, that David does because the problems are so much bigger. And that gives us um, the opportunity to try them out in our regular, everyday circumstances, to try the things that we see work for David in these crises. And we're not having to figure out what to do when our own crises come because we've put them into practice and made them part of the way we live our lives. So what I want to do is I want to look at this passage where uh, the Ark of David, uh, um, the Ark of, of God intersects with the rule of King David. Um, there's another much more famous story about the way the time when David brought the Ark into Jerusalem. And I actually preached on that a couple of years ago. If you want to go look, listen to the sermon archive, it's from uh, July of 2012. So David dancing before the Lord and the the Ark of the Covenant and all that stuff. But we're going to look at a much more obscure passage today um, in Second Samuel 15. So if you've got the scriptures handy, I'd like to begin looking at it. And I, I want to set it up a little bit. David, as I said, has kind of created this problem uh, in large part by himself. Uh, the problem he's got is somebody is going to try and take his job. Somebody is going to try and take the throne from him. But that somebody is his son Absalom. And maybe if he, if he had been a better father, maybe if he had uh, been a better king, this wouldn't have happened. Because what happened is, is years ago, Absalom killed another member of the royal family. And you can go back and read the whole story about that. And there were extenuating circumstances, and David did not put uh, Absalom to death, but he never really reconciled with him. After some years, uh, somebody intervened, and he was allowed to come back to Jerusalem, but David never really, never really um, uh, reconciled with Absalom, and because David's got lots of wives and lots of uh, potential claimants to the throne, Absalom is saying, "Well, I haven't reconciled with my dad. I guess I will never be king. Or if I get to be king, it'll because I took it for myself. Because I'm never going to get there by way of just natural inheritance." So David could have kind of solved this problem uh, before it ever happened by reconciling with uh, Absalom or by saying, Absalom, you're never going to be king, but I'm going to make you duke of this or earl of that or whatever, and and figuring out some kind of a pattern, an orderly pattern of succession. But David never does that. So Absalom says, okay, I'm just going to grab the job for myself. But the other thing Absalom does is he goes around and he, he says, if only the king were doing a better job in this area. Oh, if only Israel had a king who would do this. Oh, if only, you know, I don't know if you ever had somebody who's kind of going around carping behind your back and complaining about the things you do badly. That's exactly what Absalom does. Absalom goes around to different parts of the kingdom and says, wouldn't it be nice if we had a king who understood your problems? You know, it would be so wonderful. And that's what he does for years, years and years. I think four years, it tells us, he does that. And then finally, he has generated enough discontent with the way that David is is not doing a great job as king. And so he finally decides his time has come, and so he acts. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 13. It says, A messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the Israelites have gone after Absalom. That means Absalom actually is not just saying, I'm going to be king. He's actually got a lot of popular support because he's been doing this thing where he's going around telling people how bad David is. So David says to his officers, to his officials who are with him at Jerusalem, Get up, let us flee, or there will be no escape for, for us from Absalom. Hurry, or he will soon overtake us and bring disaster upon us and attack the city with the edge of the sword. One of the things I tend to do in a crisis, 
is what David does not do here. Uh, I don't know about you, but I think for people of faith in particular, there's there's one of two ways we act, and they're both wrong. One of them is to say, well, there's nothing for it. This is in God's hands now. I just, you know, God will do whatever God does, and that's it. I'm just going to sit here in my basement. I'm going to watch Space Ghost, and I'm going to eat cookies. And eventually, it'll get better or it won't. That We just kind of sink into a depression. We become, you know, we go into a funk, and we figure this is for God to sort out. But David doesn't do that. David says, well, let's get up, let's let's act. David has a long history uh, uh, working outside the city. His best military successes come from his life as, a, as kind of a guerrilla warfare. Um, and so he says, the last place I'm going to be is in Jerusalem. Um, and I think partly he's concerned about the town. He's concerned if the city is besieged, what's going to happen to the people there? But he says, let's get up and go. He does not just sink into a depression. So the king's officials say, your servants are ready to do whatever the Lord, uh, our Lord, the king, decides. So the king left. And then we see, you know, David for just this moment, the kind of the good David shown through. He's a larger than life character. I should be more like David. And then we see it says, followed by all his household except ten concubines whom he left behind to look after all, after the house. Uh, what I love about that is this doesn't say all ten. It just says ten. You know, out of the however many concubines he has, he's got dozens of wives or a dozen odd wives and apparently a lot of concubines. He can leave ten behind. And we say, you know, this is kind of how you get into these problems, David. So so he leaves the ten concubines behind to look after all the house. So so that's in case we were starting to think David's my hero. David is not your hero. All right. But we can learn from him nevertheless. So then there's a couple of verses where he does some military plotting. These different generals come up and uh, say, you know, should I stay or should I go? And David sorts things out about who's going to do what. And then we pick up the story um uh, again, in verse 23, it says, The whole country wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king crossed the Wadi Kidron, and all the people moved on to the wilderness. So he's left Jerusalem. He's gone down the eastern slope of the of Mount Zion, or Mount Moriah, whichever it was, and he's now crossing the the Kidron Brook, the this uh, brook that runs north-south, and he's about to go up to the east side of, of the valley, uh, to to the Mount of Olives. So he's left town now. And um, uh, the people were crying as they did this, as, as the people moved on toward the wilderness. And at that point we see Abiathar came up and Zadok also with all the Levites carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. And this is where David does the thing that if I'm not going to just sink into depression, I'm most likely to do I'm most likely to do something really rash to try to force God to back me up. You know, I don't know about you. Have you ever, you know, have you ever found yourself, maybe the details are different, but you say, I think what God wants me to do is such and such. So what I'm going to do is commit myself to an irreversible course of action so that God has to back me up. You know, I'm going to sell my house. I'm going to empty the bank account. I'm going to, you know, quit this and start that. I'm going to commit myself, and then it's up to God. And if God doesn't back me up, then it's all his fault. But David doesn't do that either. David does not try to kind of leverage God into his story. He says, the king says to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. He had the opportunity. The, the temptation must have been strong for him to say, why don't you just take the ark of God with you? That'll re-emphasize the fact that Absalom is not the legitimate ruler in in 
in Jerusalem. And who knows, maybe God will fight on your side. He's got this opportunity to take the ark and leverage it for himself. And he doesn't do that either. David sends it back. And then he says this, Ten centuries before Paul would say, I can do all things before, uh, for, uh, be, through him who strengthens me. He says this. He says, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it, the ark, and the place where it stays, the, the tabernacle. But if he, God, says, I take no pleasure in you, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Here I am is is Bible talk for uh, I'm your servant. Uh, uh, I'm here to, to whatever you command me to do. We have the song, Here I am, Lord. Um, that's what a servant says to their, their master. Here I am. He can do, you know, I was not king when he found me. And if he has other jobs in store for me, that's fine too. David says, I can do all things through him who, th- who strengthens me. David says, my son may have rebelled. Half of the country is now behind him. Lots of people don't like me, but I know one thing. I know God will never abandon me. No matter what my circumstances, no matter what I've done, no matter what people do to me, God will never abandon me. So I'm okay with this. I'm okay because I think that God wants me to be king. But if not, God can show that to me. He says... Take it back. And if he brings me back, then I'll see it. And if not, then he can do what seems good to me. You know, this is, this is what we're called to do. We believe in a, in a vocation. You know, it's not just kings and church people who have a vocation. We believe that every one of us has a vocation. So the question for you is, what is your vocation? What has God called you to do the way that God called David to be king? And when you're faced with problems, instead of going down to the basement and eating cookies and watching Space Ghost, instead of doing that, or instead of committing yourself to some course of action in the hopes that God will back you up, what would it be like if you simply said, God has called me to this. God has called me to work at this company. God has called me to this career. God has called me to be a father or a mother. God has called me to be a husband or a wife. And I'm going to do the best I can, but no, I'm not going to commit God to it because I trust that God will not abandon me. As long as I'm doing the thing that God has called me to do, then I will do my part and I will trust the results to God. Maybe things will be sorted out, maybe they won't, but God will never abandon me. That's what we can learn from David. His problems are greater than ours. No one here is a king. No one here is facing a rebellion that could, that could cause you the, the loss of the country and, and untold devastation and, and murder and, and all kinds of travails. No one is facing that kind of problem. But we all face problems. You know, it's not easy being a husband. It's not easy being a wife. It's not easy being a parent or a son or a daughter. We face challenges. And so what if we act like David? We say, look, I'm going to, I'm not going to sink into a depression. I'm going to act. I'm going to get up. I'm going to go make plans. I'm going to talk to, to these people and tell them I'll meet you at the, the ford of the river. I'm going to, I'm going to set up networks of spies. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to do my job. But I'm not going to try and leverage God into this because I trust that God will take care of the parts that are beyond my control. 
What would, what would our neighbors think of us if that's the way we dealt with our problems? What would, what would the culture around us think if they looked at Christians and they said, you know, the, the weird thing about them, I don't understand all that Jesus stuff. I don't, I don't know about that, that God stuff. I don't have all my questions answered, but I look at them and they just roll with the punches. You know, they get lemonade, you know, they, they, they get lemons in, in their life too. And their lemonade is not always tasty, but, but they roll with the punches. They don't stay up night worrying. They act and then they leave the rest to God. Imagine what kind of a witness that would be for our neighbors, for our families, for our culture. If they looked at Christians and said, there's people who just roll with the punches. People who do what they can do and leave the rest up to God. That's what we can learn from David. David never saw this coming. He, his gifts were elsewhere. He was not a great father. He was not a great king, honestly. But he was good at doing what God called him to do. And when a challenge arose, he did what he could do and he left the rest to God. Let's be the same kind of people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the lessons of David. We don't have to be like him, and our problems uh, mercifully are not the same degree as his. But we give you thanks that through through your word, we can see not just a pointer to the, the great king, but we can see a man who dealt with problems, who faced everyday problems, and knew that you would never abandon him. We pray, Lord, you'd give us faith so that we face our problems, we can do the peace we can do, and we can trust you to do the rest and know that you will never abandon us. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.